Hello, and welcome to In Reality, the podcast about power, truth, and media. I'm Eric Schoenberg. Today, Joan and I are hosting Kathleen Bellew, a historian of the present, as she describes herself, and an expert on the origins, theories, and methods of the white power movement. Kathleen teaches history at the University of Chicago, but will soon decamp a few miles north to Northwestern. Her book, Bring the War Home, traces the seminal role that veterans returning from the Vietnam War played in creating the white supremacist militias behind domestic terrorism in recent decades, including the January 6th attack. She's also the co-editor of the book, A Field Guide to White Supremacy. Hello, Joan. Hey, how's it going? Uh, it is going well. The world and me are still trying to figure out what it means that Elon Musk bought Twitter last week, uh, you know, a mere $44 billion, the world's richest man in control of one of the world's most visited social media sites. It is, it is definitely food for thought. What are your thoughts? I've been going back and forth about this. Um, he does have this sort of Batman villain, uh, you know, aura about him and the desire to buy it, not because it's, he's going to make it profitable, but because he believes in its importance as a quote unquote public square, you know, it rung very similar to things that we heard in 2011, 2012 about the power of social media. But most of that has changed as politicians and journalists and other celebrities and influential figures have started using Twitter. It's not that he wanted to innovate and create his own social media platform with the rules that he wanted. He wanted to buy the legacy and the influence of Twitter. And so I think I know pretty well, even though Trump has said he's not going to return to Twitter, um, and perhaps that's about saving face, I do think it paves the way for a return of that style of, you know, troll in chief that uh, we're going to see a lot more meme wars. We're going to see the culture wars play out on Twitter in different ways now. And, and people are already reporting upticks of harassment and a lot of people, 40,000 or so, uh, a lot of people to me, probably not a lot of people to a social media company have started to sign up for Mastodon, which is a, a, a federated version of Twitter that has smaller nodes uh, that you can interact with. But um, yeah, I, I think at this moment, there's a, there's a bit of a information crisis going on and he's swooping in and uh, I'm very leery because he has no experience really with content moderation. So that part of it is, it's become a service to the industry. It's part of customer service is doing content moderation. And I just don't think he gets the field and why it developed and what it does in the background. And so I, I don't know how this is going to go, but I do anticipate that the folks that have been working really hard at Twitter to make content moderation a thing uh, are probably first on the chopping block uh, when it comes to restructuring. And so those are my initial thoughts. And then I also started to think about other pieces. What do you think? 
Well, I think that's a sobering thought, and it certainly seems highly likely that um, content moderation will be the first place that Musk looks to cut costs. I, you know, I would say that because nobody really knows what the guy is going to do, uh, you know, you could make a pretty good living being the the sort of public psychiatrist for Elon Musk. <laughs> In fact, a lot of columnists essentially do that. But I would guess human nature being what it is that both sides are overreacting, that uh, the triumphalism on the right that will return to free speech, which means sort of unfettered misinformation speech, is probably not true. And the hellscape that people on the left see Twitter becoming uh, is probably also an exaggeration. I, 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 I tend to be guided by people who have done this before. So other executives who've run social media sites that say, in the end, you can't have a running business that is totally the Wild West. You'll drive away too many users. You'll drive away too many of the people who actually contribute to the economics of the enterprise uh, if it just becomes too toxic. And I, you know, I don't. But Elon Musk has philosophically aligned himself with the free speech movement, which, uh, you know, which means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. But it, it, it seems to me a stress to think that it means unfettered racist speech, unfettered hate speech, unfettered incitements to violence, even to Elon Musk. Yeah, if you look at the kinds of content that Elon Musk posts, uh, just by looking at his account, he posts a lot of memes, very much uh, pulling from some of the darker subreddits of our conspiracy, our memes. And so he does have this inner shit poster, if I am allowed to psychologize a bit, uh, that he does celebrate. And obviously there's also the piece of this, which has to do with economics, but not, what if the goal isn't to make Twitter profitable, but the goal is to make cryptocurrency real, right? Ah. Which is a different way of making money off of uh, networks. Oh, elaborate that, on that. Tell yeah, tell well, us more about that that idea, John. When you when you look at the trajectory of uh, Facebook, a couple years ago tried to introduce Libra and uh, quickly got swooped up into congressional hearings about Cambridge Analytica, and it never really went anywhere. But with Elon Musk and Jack Dorsey, they obviously have a very big interest in money. And mm -hmm. if you are truly anti-authoritarian. Uh, anti-state, uh, you know, really very hardcore libertarian, then there's nothing more subversive than undermining the currency of a state, uh, undermining the, the market. And so the dream of some in the Bitcoin world isn't to provide an alternative currency, but to replace the currencies of, of different governments. Um, as a challenge to the uh, authority of the state. And in some places, it might work. Uh, it might work in places that have weaker governments that have already switched over to digital cash, uh, where people are using their cell phones to exchange tokens in place of money, uh, because those things can be transferred into US currency or other kinds of currencies that actually have staying power aren't so volatile and so 
That's one of the things that I've been thinking about is a, a very long shot, but a closer possibility than making Twitter insanely profitable. There are ways to make Twitter potentially profitable by making subscriptions or, you know, moving people into uh, very easy ways to to spend money or to move money or to provide experiences. But I just don't think that that is going to be as easy as revving up a cryptocurrency that is co-signed by the network of Twitter and then pushed into you know, into the rest of the world. And so those are the kinds of things I think about when I'm wondering, well, what is the worth of these networks uh, on Twitter? And what does it mean to buy a mature social network rather than try to start something on your own that's always going to have some kind of ideological bent to it? And so I'm not so hopeful for a mass exodus from Twitter. I don't think that that's really on on tap unless there's a very stable rival but for right now i think that if they are gonna try to make profit or disrupt the state it's it's crypto all the way down all right well uh it is impossible to avoid the psycho the, the distance psychoanalysis of elon musk in this situation and anyway it's so much fun why resist it so we definitely have to keep an eye on the fact that or the possibility rather that um taking over twitter is a head fake in terms of social media and free speech and that crypto is the actual goal i took the easy analysis and thought it was the reason to take over a mature network was purely because that's where the audience is and that's what elon musk craves but we will find out and let us now turn to our guest for the day. Hello, Kathleen, and welcome to In Reality. Hello, thank you for having me. Kathleen, can we start with January 6th? For a lot of Americans, including, including yours truly, that was a watershed moment, the moment in which we realized that misinformation and polarization was a crisis and there was no more ignoring it. Also, at the same time, it kind of provided a sort of menagerie of all the different species of white nationalism, which is your area of expertise. We saw uh, Stop the Steel believers, QAnon adherents, uh, militia in their flak jackets and helmets, uh, QAnon adherents, and all the different flavors of the alt-right. Can you walk us through what we were looking at and how that fit into the, the historical background of the white nationalist movement? Absolutely. I think it helps to understand January 6th as the collision of three different constituencies um, in the militant right. So the largest one is Stop the Steal, which is sort of the edge of mainstream right-wing politics. Then there is QAnon, which I think is a you know, it's it's comparatively very new. It's very fast, and while it while it uses a lot of old conspiracy theory um, in new terms, it is comparatively less understood from a historical perspective. But the last constituency, which is the smallest but the most well armed, the most organized, is the white power movement. 
this is distinct from white nationalist political uh, above board organizing. This is the paramilitary underground that has been waging a domestic terrorism campaign since the early 1980s. It's been a movement since the late 1970s. Um, and it's incredibly broad reaching. It's had very notable longevity in the underground space, and it continues to present a threat. So this is the movement that brought together Klansmen, neo-Nazis, skinheads, tax resistors, and others um, perpetrated the Oklahoma City bombing and then went on to organize through the Unite the Right rally at Charlottesville and on into January 6th. There's a very long history there. In, in your book, Bring the War Home, White Power, the White Power Movement and Paramilitary America, you trace the origins of this movement to the era right after the Vietnam War. Why was that so important? So if we look at the ebbs and flows of what we can think of broadly as militant right activity, the, the sort of crests in membership align more consistently with the aftermath of major warfare actions than they do with a number of other factors that, that we have often used to sort of explain that activity. So if you take, for example, the Ku Klux Klan, which gives us a nice long section of activity to look at, um, we see crests in membership following the Civil War when the group was founded, following World War I, World War II in Korea, and Vietnam um, transitioning into the white power movement following the Gulf War and following the global war on terror. Um, this is a more consistent phenomenon than alignment with say populism, poverty, surges in immigration, surges in civil rights gains, um, and a number of other criteria that, that some historians have argued are what's at play here. So for instance, the Ku Klux Klan bottoms out during the Great Depression, when if we would think it has to do with just economics, we would expect to see a major surge. So all that is, is to say um, that that phenomenon had me looking at the aftermath of warfare. Now, it's not just veterans coming home, that is the problem, although that is what's happening for a sort of small group of influencers who have enormous power within this movement um, and bring home arms expertise, weapons training, tactical gear, and a whole bunch of other things to the movement to escalate violence. It turns out that all of American society is more available for violent activity in the aftermath of warfare. So if you look, if you look at the sociological research on this, that goes across gender, across age group, all of us are more available for violence after warfare. Let's just pause here on violence and think about this transition. Uh, you and I have both argued in different op-eds and places that people that we uh, as a society might consider lone wolves are actually enmeshed deeply in uh, white power movements online. And uh, the violence of January 6th was something that uh, you and I were even DMing about um, knowing that this was coming. And so my big question for you, and maybe it's too big of a question, but how do we understand the relationship of what some researchers have called self-radicalization or the the ability to go online and learn from and interact with other militia members or extremist groups, even if you're very isolated in a very isolating area, uh, and then to come out and um, use violence to call attention to your ideas or the ideas of this movement. How do you think it all works together in this 
moment of, you know, a highly networked world? Is this making the propensity for, it feels like it's making the propensity for violence worse uh, to me, but I'd love to get your thoughts on that. So I think the, the short answer is, I think this could go in one of two directions. Um, one is more violent than the other, arguably. they're both violent, they're different kinds of violence, but let me come back around to that. I think um, when I think about the role of sort of networking, self-radicalization and social media in the movement, to me, that's a very long story. So the white power movement adopted um, social network activism in 1983-84 with LibertyNet, which is sort of a proto-internet computer message board system, um, keyword access or code word protected, where they were posting things that you would expect like assassination target lists and ideological writings, but they were also posting things like personal ads. So they really were enmeshing both parts of social media all the way back in 1983-84. Now, as I said, this is a movement with enormous continuity across time. This is the same movement, the same weapons, the same people, the same money that connects that moment all the way up to the present. There has not been a decisive stop, a big prosecution or any kind of tamping down that has really changed the organizational structure. Um, Now that social network activism came around at exactly the same historical moment that, that white power activists implemented leaderless resistance which is cell style organization for violent activity um, in which one or a few activists are supposed to take action against a agreed upon set of targets without communication with other cells and without communication with movement leadership. Now, leaderless resistance um, is where we get the idea of the lone wolf because we get both the movement trying to disavow its connections quite deliberately in the archive by saying it's just an individual, it's just that guy, it has nothing to do with my group, it has nothing to do with this group. Um, and we get sort of the, the durable social consequence of leaderless resistance, which is our inability to tell a story about this movement or to respond appropriately because all we see are lone wolves. And you can see that you know now we see stories about the Charleston shooting is anti-Black violence. The El Paso shooting is anti-Latino or anti-immigrant violence. The Tree of Life shooting is anti-Semitic violence. And they are those things, but those are all white power gunmen who share an ideology, who share um, many cases ties to one another, who share manifesto language. And when we understand those as part of a movement, the impetus to respond is very different. So Okay, so we have on the one hand, the problem of the lone wolf gunmen, our inability to respond. And that whole side of it has to do with mass casualty violence, right? Like that's the thread that gets us to events like Oklahoma City, which are acts of mass casualty violence with the purpose of awakening the white people to race war. So we have to understand that trajectory as not ending in a mass violent attack like Oklahoma City, but opening the door to even more violence, right? So. During the time that I study, that was the only option open because the activists that I was studying did not believe that mainstream political action could ever possibly deliver any of what they wanted, right? They didn't think that they could use electoral politics to do things like create a white homeland or go back to Jim Crow or reinstitute slavery, which are some of the things they talked about. Um, They thought they had to abandon the ballot um, in favor of the bullet. So ironically, they're quoting Malcolm X there, but they don't say that. And, you know, so 
that was the only option. Now, in our current moment, that door to mainstream politics is wide open. So there's another path of action that is not mass casualty violence, but instead has to do with things like Proud Boys sitting in on school board meetings and trying to um, intimidate local politics, um, trying to shape curriculum, trying to do runs for office. We see, I think it was 28 Oath Keepers um, holding office right now at the last you know, investigative report, which was a year and a half ago, it must be more. Um, we see people from the January 6th crowd running for office. So using politics, not as a publicity stunt like David Duke did in the 90s, but as an actual lever for change, is a whole different path. Now, that's not a nonviolent path. That leads to fascism and authoritarianism, which is going to have all kinds of violent consequences, um, if not in the short term, in the long term. Um, both of these are violent paths, but I think that the, the operating mechanism is somewhat different. I'm a historian, and so I don't know as much as you do about what this is like on the ground, but my guess is that there is some friction about this within these groups of activists because they never agree uniformly on anything. And I think that we are likely to see both of those strategies playing out. Kathleen, how has social media as a communication recruitment tool, uh, an organizing medium, how has that changed the movements? I think that, again, that's a story of continuity, but the it just it, it has so much more power than it did in the early 1980s when it was something quite obscure. I mean, like when they get on Liberty Net in 1984, they have to do that by distributing money to groups, getting the groups to buy a computer, traveling to the group to teach them how to use the computer like they have to build the entire infrastructure themselves. Now you can stumble sideways into this activity. And as Joan was saying, you can self-radicalize by simply looking at the materials, you know, maybe you click a meme and before long, you're deep into a neo-Nazi discussion space. And since we have, we, we spend so much of our lives in social media now, it just has this incredible exponentially higher power than it did. Yeah. I'd love to talk a little bit more about that, especially as I, you know, I've been thinking a lot about this moment um 2016 into 2017 as we saw the rise of trolls and white supremacists really coming into view um it's not you know and and for a while you and i both were arguing hey it's not the case that these folks weren't here before it's just that they've been given a different kind of public prominence love to hear you talk a little bit about the role of journalism historically in platforming white power movements. And then what was your take on the rise of the so-called alt-right in 2017 in the lead up to uh, Charlottesville? And how could journalists perhaps have done their coverage differently so as to not glorify some of these emerging key figures like Richard Spencer, Milo Yiannopoulos, or uh, any of the other uh, folks that had had organized uh, Unite the Right rally, like uh, Jason Kessler. Thank you so much for this question. I'm so excited to talk about this. Um, we, I, with some colleagues, uh, Ramon Gutierrez and some others, we put together this field guide to white supremacy, which is meant as a resource for journalists exactly for this set of problems. Um, and one of the things that we realized that I realized very early on in talking to journalists about all of this is that there were hardly any resources for people who were thrown into this beat um, fresh to it. 
Um, so, you know, if you've just encountered this, it feels quite shocking. The ideology is quite shocking. And when you meet someone who is espousing shocking ideas, who, you know, is there was an early piece about Richard Spencer where they talked about like his fusion restaurant menu order and the way he like was nicely dressed and quaffed and all of these things. Um, people are surprised that these actors are people. And I understand that. That's something that happens to, I think, many researchers along this trajectory too. But the problem is writing a piece at that moment of the process that goes on to sort of express your surprise that people shop for Tupperware or eat spaghetti or, you know, have friends um, instead of, I don't know what people are imagining, but but this is a movement of people. Like if you look at this movement, there are as many ways into the radical right in the 1980s as there are people in the radical right in the 1980s. Some of them are there because they have always believed um, in white supremacy and they came out of like the George Wallace campaign and they're just like intent on finding an outlet. But some of them are there because they needed childcare and the movement was willing to watch their kid and like pick them up from the airport. And they, that's where their church was. And, you know, there's a lot of different human stories about why people enter these spaces. And I think that's one important part of the coverage. But what has to be presented is the huge violence that this movement presents. This is a fundamentally anti-American movement in every sense. This is anti-democracy. It is anti-republic. It is anti-constitution. Um, it is anti many of the things that our mainstream has said that we care about. And when that falls away from the reporting, it's a real problem. Now, I'm not um, picking on the journalists that were in that position. I think that there are a lot of reasons that journalists are thrown onto this beat with no training um, that have to do with you know how we budget in our newsrooms, how we move people around in beats. Um, and also that, you know, frankly, we also did this same failure in the academy, as you know, where um, many academics did the same thing. And so there wasn't a lot of context for this until very recently. Um, but I think, you know, uh, adding things to the AP style guide would be helpful. Um, there's a section in there on how to report about the Irish Republican army, but nothing about how to report on the KKK. Um, and the sort of understanding the opportunism of these groups and the way that they changed names very frequently, I think would also be helpful. I think this is a, a fascinating point to pursue. If the members of this, uh, of the white supremacy movement are recognizable as people like you or me, even if the philosophy is odious, is there a way to bring people back? A way to call people from the movement in? Are there successful sort of cult recovery mechanisms that you've seen? There's a whole subspecialty now of folks thinking about de-radicalization, and that's not my area. Um, I will say that there are a lot of de-radicalization stories in the archive, and a lot of them just have to do with human contact and relationships and, and people. Um, it's difficult for me to think about how one would scale that kind of interpersonal support up. Mm -hmm. um, so when we're thinking about systemic solutions for this, I tend to be drawn to thinking about the other end um, and thinking about the radicalization part. So for instance, one of the things that I've been thinking about a lot um, is that the, the, history, the historiography about the military and the way that civil services are provided within the armed forces um, has shown over the last several years that when it wants to, the US Armed Forces is incredibly good 
at education projects within its own force. So like, so for instance, a book by David Kieran that came out recently shows that mental health rates, if you adjust for sort of the higher exposure of military communities, mental health provision within the US armed forces is excellent. And so is suicide prevention because they've addressed this. If they decided to sort of turn that massive bureaucracy towards things like um, civics and kind of like basic internet proficiency, and maybe also some history, I think that that could be a really powerful tool in sort of dealing with a lot of this problem head on. And the military is just one example of this. I think we need a pan-institutional answer, um, although I'm, I'm drawn to the utility of history as a, a starting point, at least for a lot of these conversations. We, um, we are not alone as a white supremacist nation. There are many, many nations that have also struggled with white supremacy and racial violence, and racial inequality. Uh, we are one of the only ones that has not had a real truth and reconciliation project or national reckoning or curriculum consideration that really gets at this long shared history. And I will just say, um, I think it helps to distinguish terminology a little bit. If we think of white supremacy as sort of a wooden fence in somebody's backyard, right? Um, that fence was built by people who believe in white supremacy. That's, that was a, a foundational belief in our country. Um, and the planks in this fence include things like unequal incarceration rates and unequal educational outcomes. We can look at maternal mortality rates. We can look at the, the different ways that people can access COVID education or, or uh, COVID um, health measures. Um, all of these things have racial inequality built in, partly because they are part of this long history. So racial violence is just one plank on that fence, or maybe racial violence is coming along and reinforcing the fence. But even if we were to all decide that we don't believe in white supremacy anymore, that fence would still be standing up. So there's this big systemic problem that meets the radical violence. And we have to work at kind of the intersection of those two things. The intersection is is tough, I think, because of the way in which what you mentioned earlier about you can scale radicalization, but you can't necessarily scale relationships and that kind of social bonding that brings people back together. It reminds me of some of the research about how do LGBTQ folks end up gaining civil rights uh it's because people knew them and people had mm -hmm. relationships with them and and they were considered part of the family and it was a very big process of coming out and being vulnerable uh and of course we can't expect you know people who are being hated by white supremacists you know who are real people uh you know you can't expect people that to be to be conscious of trying to justify their existence to someone else and that part of it is is always really hard because i think what it implies then is we need to have white people uh very interested in explaining identity uh bringing people into conversations about race in a way that isn't necessarily shaming or accusatory but is uh honest about the ways in which they've come to learn these points of view um and you know that often begins you know 
almost in utero in some cases where uh, you are raised in in a society, of course, that is white supremacists and rewarding of white people. But then on the, you know, practice of it, it's people at the end of the day that we're trying to change as well as the structures that they've been brought up in. And so I'd like to hear you talk a bit more in broad strokes. I know uh, not going to get into a fight about which is better history or sociology here, but sociology <laughs> wins every time. Uh, okay, just Joe, kidding. Just kidding. Okay. You know, um, but you know, you've talked about using history as a lens to help us explain uh, the rise of, of both white supremacy and this, and these, uh, white supremacists. But yeah, sociologically, I'm thinking about, well, we have these, these networks and we have the ability to either build these network ties to make these communities come closer together, which is what social media really does. And then you have the flip side of that, which is you would really need a, a concerted group of folks that are thinking deeply about this, that are going in almost like evangelists in some cases uh, that are trying to bring people back into conversation about people's dignity and humanity and extending uh, empathy to one another. Um, and I've seen different groups try this, but again, we run into the problem of, of scale but I'm wondering for you, um, since we're talking about some of the big pictures here, are there policies or ways in which either government or social media or internet tech companies should be thinking differently about the nature of these groups and how to either disrupt them or make the participation in them more difficult? So I want to go back to the first part of the question. So we're not starting from zero. I want to think about, so the example that actually got me into thinking about this project um, is a truth and reconciliation commission that was, um, that, that happened in Greensboro, North Carolina in 2005. Okay. So the event that they were talking about was a 1979 shooting of five leftist activists by a united caravan of Klansmen and neo-Nazi gunmen. Four of the people killed were presented as white um, and one white men and one African-American woman. Okay, so that shooting was an almost one-sided massacre and we can talk about the specifics if you want. The reason that justice couldn't happen was not just the racial violence, but the other planks in the fence we were talking about. Um, so for instance, the first trial occurred with an all white jury because there was still a way to seat an all white jury in the early 1980s in North Carolina using peremptory challenges. That is simply a vestige of white supremacy. Um, the second trial, the federal trial failed because of the way that the jury instructions separated race uh, discrimination based on race from discrimination based on politics. That is a failure of our judicial system. So we have a, an example of racial violence together with systemic white supremacy, together with some problems related to journalism, related to community complicity, related to the city. Um, and all of this led to a TRC process in 2005. Okay, this Truth Commission had no government support. It was just NGO. It had no subpoena power. 
It had no punitive capacity. It couldn't do anything. It was just a community driven, let's talk about what happened and get the history straight. Um, and that doesn't maybe sound like something that can have a transformative impact, but it did. And it's kind of an amazing story. So even the people in the Klan and neo-Nazi groups showed up to this completely voluntary TRC process to talk about what they were doing and why when they opened fire that day. And the process went on to talk about sort of the role of journalism, the role of the, the, the legal system, the role of the labor organizing movement, where the left was, where the right was, the whole historical picture. They produced an amazing final report, which had no power again to do anything. Um, and they convened this thing and then it kind of stalled out. But then after the Unite the Right rally in 20, uh, what was that, 17, the city of Greensboro finally issued an apology for its part in this set of failures. So we have a story where even without government approval, an NGO TRC process was able to make a major change. Um, I think that shows us a couple of important things. One is that just the process of getting together and talking through the story has enormous transformative power. Um, and restorative justice has a lot of sort of capacity to get at some of these community building issues. And, you know, we can go back to the literature and see how this has worked in other communities. I think the South African TRC is an interesting example. Um, Latin American TRCs have, have done some of this work too. And then now we have a moment, as we see after 2017, where we have enough public awareness that telling these stories is attached to political will, at least on one side of the aisle. Now, um, granted, getting people to come to one of these in 2005 is dramatically different than getting people to come to one of these in 2022. But I will say that even something like Make America Great Again as a slogan is fundamentally a historical argument. That is a proposition about what is America? When was it great? Can it be great again? Who's included? Who's excluded? I think as a historian that we should address that historically and talk about these histories of inequality, um, histories of racial violence that are fundamental to that slogan um, on, on those terms. I think that, I, I really think that there is a, a need to have this set of historical conversations. But I will also say, um, I totally agree with you about the social networks piece. I find myself sort of unable to talk about that very well, because as you say, I'm not trained in thinking about that particular side of the coin. But, you know, I think um, maybe that's just an example of how this is really a fundamentally interdisciplinary problem in every sense, right? Like this is, we need every tool in the toolbox to get at this thing. We need better tech regulation, but we also need people talking to each other and we need people reaching out to loved ones and we need better resources at school. And we need, you know, I need the school librarian who sees a kid going on white power message boards. I want that person to have both a civics curriculum and some basic historical knowledge that she can rely on or he can rely on. And I want them to have social um, alternatives that they can point this kid to. So there's a whole bunch of different places that we can work. Um, and not all of them are in the policy space, which I think is, is usually kind of a hopeful note for people in their own communities. Kathleen, that's a great place to leave it with hope uh, and a whole new definition of making America great again. I, <laughs> I love it. Jonah, any final word? I just appreciate you coming on and chatting with us. I really respect your work and um, I'm, I was, you know, uh, 
a fan for a long time and uh it was really great to get to meet you at uh the atlantic fest at u chicago and uh excited for your new position uh that you're starting in the you're starting in the fall right uh the summer yeah moving to northwestern we're going to be building um some things up there around history of the present thinking about how history can do this kind of work um so i'm a fan too thank you so much for having me on Kathleen, thank you for joining In Reality. Kathleen Ballou is a historian, the author of Bring the War Home, White Power Movement and Paramilitary America, and the editor with Ramon Guterres of A Field Guide to White Supremacy. This has been In Reality with Eric Schoenberg and Joan Donovan. Thank you for listening. Well, wasn't that amazing? It was created and produced by podcast partners. They're really lovely people and rather good at all this podcasting guff. Find out more at podcastpartners.com. Podcast Partners.